epidemiologists, we're the eyes and the ears of public health. So we're the folks that help let the world know what's going on and where we're going and helping to provide that direction. It can be an intense field. It's a really fun and rewarding field. I have never in one day of my life regretted being an epidemiologist. Like I said, with the constant supply of health problems, you will never be bored as an epidemiologist. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Hey everyone, it's Gordon here, and you're about to hear part two of my conversation with Dr. Annette Regan about why public health needs more epidemiologists. Now, Dr. Regan's background is in the epidemiological evaluation of maternal and child health programs with specific expertise in the evaluation of maternal vaccination programs. Her research includes the application of complex epidemiological analyses to investigate three key areas of vaccine program evaluation, those being vaccine uptake, vaccine safety, and vaccine effectiveness. As principal investigator on several successfully funded national U.S. and Australian grants, she continues to lead foundational work specific to the research area outlined in this proposal, including post-implementation assessment of the safety and effectiveness of influenza and pertussis vaccination during pregnancy. Dr. Regan's expertise in the field of maternal immunization, especially related to vaccine safety, has been highlighted in several recent invited reviews and commentaries. Enjoy our conversation. We're going to move on to our fun, exciting segment called Insight Blitz. Dr. Regan, are you ready for a little rapid fire? I am ready. You're ready. All right. <laughs> so this is our segment called Insight Blitz, where we'll ask you a few questions or read some statements, and you'll provide very brief responses to each of them. All right. Got let's it. begin. So what's one key advice you would give for undergrad students wanting to pursue epidemiology at the master's level? I would start talking to different programs, saying where you feel like you might fit, and maybe even reach out to a local epi. There's some actually really good podcasts and like this one and some others that where you can actually reach out to an epi to chat with them. So I'd recommend just starting some conversations and looking where you want to go. All right. Conversation starting. What is the most important step someone can take to land their first job as an epidemiologist? You know, I'm going to say conversations again. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned the social skills, putting yourself out there, being really purposeful with where you're going to do. If you're, if your program has a practicum requirement, getting a practicum at a place where you think you might want to work, building those connections with people that might be your potential employer in future and putting yourself out there. So my first job was, I just mentioned to somebody I was looking for a job and 
they said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to do analysis. And so I think just having those conversations and put it, not being afraid to put yourself out there can really help you make that jump from school to employment. What is the best way or some best ways that you can think of for people to develop their skills in epidemiology outside of the classroom or for professionals to keep their current skills up to date? Read a lot mm. of readings. There's a lot of good journals and news outlets and things like that, but reading, keeping up to date with what's going on in epi, but outside of reading, a little more fun, um, <laughs> going to events. We're back in a setting where conferences are on and conferences can be a really good place to, you can sit and absorb what's the cutting edge, what's going on in, in the field, where is it going, what are the new things, so you can, in a couple of days, soak all that in. So reading and conferences. Okay, you heard it, reading and conferences. What statistical software do you suggest learning or any kind of programming or script language that people should have as a starter as they make their way into epidemiology? As a self-professed data geek, I love this question. So my the hard part is going to be keeping this short. No, I think um, we're going to love all of it. So go for okay. it. So right now, I would say the way to go is R, to be honest. R is free. It's used outside of public health. It's used widely. The script is based on, or the programming is based on something called S. Like I said, it's free, it's open access, and it's explosively growing the types of analyses that you can do in it. I also think because a lot of what we do is creating map, pretty maps, pretty graphs and things like that, they need to look good because you mm -hmm. want your audience to go, oh, wow, and really clearly see based on all this hard work that you've done, mm -hmm. but really clearly in one picture, see, right, this is what's going on. And I think art does a really good job at creating those visualizations. But there's a lot of programs available. So like I was trained in SAS. And so it's kind of like I, I invested a few years in learning French or something, and it's hard for me to lose that. So I still use SAS a lot as well. And SAS is something that if you have that on your CV, it's a very sellable skill. Mm -hmm. It's used a lot by CDC. It's also used a lot in the private sector and outside of public health. Mm -hmm. um, so people who are data managers and things like that, even outside of public health, use SAS a lot. And then there's other programs like Stata, SPSS. SPSS is used probably less commonly, but... I'd say my two person, and this is personal, are mm -hmm. R and SAS. And I think those are highly sellable skills if you can get trained up in them. SQL coding is another thing that if you're really into data, something I wish I was better at. But if you can code in SQL, that is also a very useful skill, especially as we move more towards big push towards working with big, what we call big data. Mm -hmm. So data sets that have millions and millions of people and a lot of the coding that you need to work with those types of data systems is SQL based. I must ask a follow-up question on that. So for folks who are maybe just starting off learning these things, is there certain courses that are highly recommended out there? Is it at the University of YouTube? What would you suggest for people who want to get started on these? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of places you can go on the web. A lot of universities actually have, so their EPI and their biostats department will host online trainings, like maybe a short summer course. And because of the pandemic, a lot of these are online. So they're very mm -hmm. accessible to, regardless of where you are in the world. You can find a university that is hosting a summer course or even during the fall or spring as well. You can, Coursera, of course, has a ton. And then hopefully if you're somebody that hasn't 
like made the jump to MPH yet, mm-hmm. you can look for a program that's going to provide you with some of those trainings. And because it's always nice to have it as part of your graduate training. So you have an instructor there to work with you in developing those skills and something that you're going to use. Like when I was using learning SAS, it was really helpful that it was the full two years we're using it. Mm-hmm. We're constantly using it. And it's, like I said, it's kind of like learning French. So it's really handy when you're having to speak French all the time right. versus, you know, something that you're trying every now and again. Mm-hmm. So I think also if you're shopping for programs, making sure that the things that you want to learn are incorporated into the program. But there's a ton of online resources that you can find to learn, especially R, because R is a very, I mentioned free open source community. There's a ton of blogs, um, videos, and sites that you can find some free training to learn how to at least get you started in R. And out of curiosity, it's always a tricky spot where there are certain skills that are self-taught and how you would reflect that on a resume. Do you have any suggestions of how someone would go about showing a competency that came from their own self-learning versus on the job. Do you understand what I mean? I understand what you mean. Yeah, that's a very... So, I mean, for example, I have formal training in SAS, but I taught myself Mm -hmm. R. No, I didn't do a formal course. Um, And R is kind of one of those things that it's not... It's actually quite challenging to teach because it's not... Because it's so open source, it's not a linear process. Mm -hmm. It's not like you start with this procedure, you move to another one. It's like, here's one thing that I want to do. There are 50 different ways that I can do it. And it's not necessarily that one way is wrong. So it's this very open learning environment. I would say if you want to demonstrate that you can do it, um, be willing to provide sample code. Okay. Let's say I was uh, it, it, hiring for a, uh, an RA and I needed to know that they could code in R. If they provided me with last page of their CV or as an attachment or something, some code that they worked up or an example of a project that they did and the analysis they did, it's really helpful because it shows me that they do know how to code. They know how to do analysis. So being able to provide a concrete example mm-hmm. where you've applied it would be really handy. Okay. All right. That's a pro tip right there. That brings us to the end of our rapid segment. We went a little bit over, but the value that we got was instrumental. So it was worth breaking our little in-house rules. To transition out of that, you've alluded to this. Folks were asking around the minimum educational requirements to practice as an epidemiologist. It's sounding like you have to have at least a graduate degree to be considered for positions where you're practicing as an epidemiologist, or can some people get in with just a bachelor's degree? There are some epidemiology positions, like you, I don't think you would be classed as a formal epidemiologist okay. typically, but there are some epidemiology-like positions that you can do with a bachelor. So things like during the pandemic is a great example, getting involved in the contact tracing team, like mm. a bunch of people on that team aren't necessarily haven't completed an MPH, but they're doing epi work under the supervision of a mm. of an epidemiologist. But if you want that formal epidemiologist title, generally you'll need to complete a MPH. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are higher degrees as well. I think there were some questions about um, in what case would you need to do a PhD? Right. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can get into that one too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think a lot of epidemiologists, especially in the public space, are MPH qualified, and that's definitely mm-hmm. enough to get you in and to move up. Um, PhD. 
D is really more for if you're going to go into the academic space and if you think you might want to, like, if you want to be a leader in public health, like you want to have your own team, you want to be leading your own research program, something like that, like it would be helpful to have a PhD because PhD, so the MPH is going to give you that really solid base. Like you have great technical knowledge in public and epidemiology through the MPH. The PhD is going to give you that space to write. Now you have that foundation, but I want you to develop something on your own. You're working with your mentors and your supervisors, but this is really your thing now. I want you to create something from scratch, figure out what your research questions are and create a three-year research program Mm -hmm. out of that and then show us what you found. So it teaches you that independence and that leadership that you would need to, once you once you graduate, go on and lead your own team. It's also helpful to have if you think, even in the public sector, I don't think a PhD is needed to Mm -hmm. move up to be like the senior epidemiologist or the managing epidemiologist, but it doesn't hurt to have people definitely do look at it as they recognize that you've had that leadership experience as part of your training. So it is definitely respected and weighed. It is taken into account for leadership positions, even in the public sector, but not necessary. I know a ton of really exceptional epidemiologists that are branch chiefs now at CDC and they never did the PhD. Okay. That is good to know. That is good to know. To what extent are epidemiologists managing projects? You kind of alluded it there with having your own research program. Of course, you're planning out projects. Research fits underneath that. How much would you say in terms of an epidemiologist role, are you managing and leading projects? How much of it is project management essentially? This is a great, a great question. Mm. So I would say MPH previously, and I'm talking about public health in general. Mm -hmm. I think project management is a really important skill to have for any public health professional because a lot of what you do in public health is project-based. So Mm -hmm. you're working on a tobacco control project or Mm -hmm. you're working on a community project to improve healthy eating. Like it's universal. And the same thing goes for epidemiology. So a lot of it is project-based. So we had an initial outbreak of monkeypox, right? So you need to work up a, what could be perceived to be a a big project where you're going to go out and you're going to, who's going to be doing the case finding, managing the case finding team, working out, coordinating between them and your surveillance team and your program officials, like the people that are actually doing a lot of the really important administrative stuff. So coordinating between these groups, actually coordinating at a project management level, these different activities is really, really important. And then for me as a PhD epi at a university, I have a series of really big projects Mm -hmm. that I'm working on. So like right now I have a million dollar study that I'm having to manage where I have a team working on three key research questions that we have and from start to finish working on setting up the initial contract. This is all the the less sexy epidemiology work, <laughs> but really, really important. It's part of the pie that you have to deal with. So, and some people enjoy it more than others. I prefer the data site, but <laughs> setting up the contracts, getting the data agreements together, hiring the team, managing the team, and then of course, doing all of the actual epi work. And then at the end of it, doing all the reporting, making sure that you're meeting all the requirements that you have to meet, reporting to your funder, reporting to your IRB, your ethics committee. There's a lot of mm, project management right. that's intertwined with public health and epidemiology is included there. I always think having some 
project management training is really helpful. And in some of our uh, MPH concentrations, we incorporate project mm. management course in particular to help you get that experience. That's fantastic to hear. When I realized project management was such a core skill, we didn't really learn it in our MPH. So I went Same. and did a certification separate to that. And it's changed the way I function in the workplace. It's made me more aware of the different components. Some of the components are logistical, not necessarily health related. And you also have to be good at those for your projects to succeed. So I'm glad that some programs are integrating that. Absolutely. I think I saw your PMP. PMP. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Congrats on that. That's Thank a you. great certification to have. I did Prince, but yeah. Prince. Uh, oh, same. okay. Prince. Yeah. yeah. Same idea. Yeah. Yep. yep. Very, very important. I can't stress. I echo what Dr. Regan said. It's one thing to know about certain theories and concepts, but you're working with people. You're working with different departments. You have funding. How to use the funding appropriately? Can't stress mm-hmm. it enough. Can't Absolutely, stress it enough. Gordon. Now, just to shift gears a little bit as we wind down to talk about what does epidemiology look like in the future? So the first question I have for you in this regard is epidemiologists, the role that they're playing now, what does it look like in the future in terms of preparing for future pandemics, addressing health inequities? What is epidemiologists role as we transition into the future of public health? Looking at health inequity in particular. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about this and prep for this morning. I was thinking about the different areas of epidemiology that I think we're at critical need for. Mm -hmm. Social epidemiology. So, So there's a whole field of epidemiology dedicated to how our social settings and environments can create these dispar- these health disparities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really growing and important area. My MPH training was done quite a while ago now, and I didn't even know what social epidemiology was at the time. I don't even think there was a course on offer. It's definitely something that's being emphasized a lot more. And I think for the next 10 years, we need more social epidemiologists. It's not like it's something new. It's not mm-hmm. like we we haven't known that this is a major problem, but I think we have the, you know, the, it, just like the pandemic, there's, there's attention, there's light shown on this now. And I think we have the buy-in from funders and other important um, agencies to really do the work. So I think having social epidemiologists to tackle some of these the drivers of inequities and what we can be doing better as public health professionals. I think that's a major role for future epidemiologists. Awesome. So we know there's an overall demand and projected increase in demand for epidemiologists and social epidemiology is a place where we think that's going to be for sure an area of need based on what we're seeing now and what we know we're going to see in the future. Some people are wondering though, based on this and we're advocating for people to go into epidemiology. Based on your perspective and what you know, is there a chance that it becomes too saturated? Can we have too many epidemiologists based on the landscape that we have now? You can never have too many. Epi- <laughs> no, I think it's a fair question. This shortage has been pervasive. It's mm. been longstanding. We've mm-hmm. had it. We had it before the pandemic. It's worse now during the pandemic, and I don't think it's going to get any better. So. I think of it, again, going back to that like supply and demand. Right now, I think it's pretty clear that we have a never-ending supply of problems. And as long as we can continue to advocate for the funding for epidemiologists, Mm -hmm. which I think that argument is pretty clearly made right now, 
I don't see us getting to a place where we have saturation. Mm -hmm. I, I just think the shortage is so big, the supply is so high that it's hard to see uh, us having too many epidemiologists. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like having too much money. Is that is it possible? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I would I would tend to agree with that. Funding in terms of having more epi positions available, that's something for sure that we need. But for folks who are at the point in their education or career where they're deciding what they want to do for their next 20, 30, 40 years in their career, what is being done now to incentivize people going in epidemiology who have kind of a mind and skills to succeed in that aspect? Are we thinking about scholarships, other kinds of promotion, just to incentivize people going into that part of public health? Yeah, so I would say there are a lot of public health schools are trying to subsidize the cost okay. of a graduate program. We're one of them. So we in particular really want to emphasize this issue that you raise, this really important issue of health inequities. And so for students that we feel are in particular interested or likely to address social justice issues, mm -hmm. we have some scholarships that we set aside called social justice scholarships. And that it at least helps to bring down the cost of the MPH program a little bit. And a lot of universities are doing that. I think the other thing, so during the pandemic, we saw a lot of interest in or renewed interest in studying or pursuing a career in public health. So a mm -hmm. lot of public health programs have started to expand, trying to look at how we could expand the number of seats available in programs. So how can we teach, provide more training to a larger student body, but not lose that really mm. nice teacher to student ratio mm -hmm. and the hands-on experiences that they get with their instructors? How do we train up more people, but not lose the, the experience that each student gets? So that's another thing that I think programs have been trying to tackle. So yeah, creating more seats, trying to bring the cost down as, as much as we possibly can. And there are some, depending on what area you want to go into, you can find some scholarships for public health studies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stipulate if you're going to go into behavioral health or policy or epidemiology. It's just public health generally. There's some nutrition scholarships. There's, it kind of depends on what you're going to, what your what area you're planning on going into, but you can find some public health general scholarships to help get you help at least bring that cost down and mm -hmm. make it easier for you to pursue a graduate degree in, in public health, including epidemiology. Fantastic. Dr. Regan, this has been a blast. We could keep you here for another two or three hours, but I'm sure you don't want that. But I will give you an opportunity to say any last words that you might have that you can impart on folks who are generally interested in epidemiology and maybe why they should consider it as a career path? Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. Um, my final words would be epidemiologists, we're the eyes and the ears of public health. So we're the folks that help let the world know what's going on and where we're going and helping to provide that direction. It can be an intense field. It's a really fun and rewarding field. I have never in one day of my life regretted being an epidemiologist. Like I said, with the constant supply of health problems, you will never be bored as an epidemiologist. So I hope that I've given you all a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be an epi. What the, if you didn't know what epidemiology was before, I hope you have a general idea of what we do and 
the fact that we need more EPIs and I wish you all luck with thinking about your futures in public health or outside of public health, if that's where you are. Thank you, Dr. Regan. This was a fantastic podcast. I learned so much. Now I'm second guessing my career that I thought I was going to do in public health and I might turn up as an epidemiologist in two, three years from now. But I hope that- Come on down to Orange County. (laughs) Hey, hey, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.